Well, good evening, everyone. It's, uh, it's great to see you all here. So tonight we're basically uh, up to part two of our two-part, uh, sorry, not two-part series, four-part series on gospel-shaped lives. And the idea being that the gospel should be present all over the Bible. It shouldn't just be a New Testament thing. It should be present everywhere. And we have quite a challenge tonight because we're going to be looking at a book called Hosea. Now, honest confession time. Hands up who's actually read Hosea. Hands up. Okay, quite a few. Hands up if you could confidently tell me what it's about. One person, two. Two people. Okay, so now you can see the challenge of tonight, right? So before we get into it, we have to do a little bit of setting the scene uh, before we can really unpack this book. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was that, I don't know about your experience, but sometimes the Bible can be quite difficult to understand. Uh, who's had that experience before? When we read it, we don't n- initially see what's going on. And there's actually a very good reason for that, because the Bible wasn't written to us. Uh, the Bible was written to a, a real people in a real time, to a, in a real culture. Take Hosea, for example. Hosea was written over 3,000 years ago. Now, most of us here would think our parents and our grandparents, what they did when they were younger was weird. Like, they're the strange people, some of the stuff that they did. We would think that, but imagine that 3,000 years ago. Not only that, but it was written in a different culture in the Middle East. If we went to the Middle East today, we would think their culture is weird or different. Maybe that's a better word. But imagine that 3,000 years ago. And this is why it's so important when we come to books of the Bible to understand what, where, where it was being written to, why was it being written, what was the context behind these books. Because you see, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so because of this, what we're going to do is we're going to spend just a short amount of time recapping some history stuff to kind of get us to have an idea of the book of Hosea. So we can clearly see what's going on, and it's really important to this book. So I want you to to listen closely to this so we can get a sense for where Hosea is going. God is a God who desires relationship. God is a God who desires relationship. Ever since he created humanity, that's been the one thing he has been after, to walk in deep relationship with his people. He wanted it to be a relationship where his people get all their hopes, all their joys, all their purpose in life, all their fulfillment. That's what his desire has always been. But what happened? Well, we all know the story. We've gone over it here before. But humanity chose to reject that relationship with God and basically to say that, no, we believe that we can, we can make our own purpose. We can fill the desires of our hearts, which, of course, is impossible without God. But we became self-centered and attempting to be self-sufficient. We rejected this relationship with God, despite the fact that he created us, Despite the fact that he gave us breath, gives us breath, we rejected that relationship. And so God had every right to be done with humanity, to be done with them, but he didn't. Because of his great love, he still desired to be in relationship with his people, even after we had rejected him. And so what did he do? He decided to pursue us. He decided to pursue a people that didn't even want him. 
And he did this in a unique way. He chose a person called Abraham. You might have heard of Abraham's story. He chose Abraham and he made a covenant with him. He said to him, I'm going to bless you, not because of anything you have done. There was nothing special about Abraham, but God said, I'm going to bless you and give you many children, many descendants. But not only that, I'm going to give you a land for this nation that will come from you. But more than that, I'm going to use this nation to bless the whole world. That was his promise to Abraham. And so this is kind of what took place. God graciously blessed Abraham. He had children, then his children had children, and they had children, and they became a pretty large nation. Before long, there was over a million of them. But there was a problem. Because during this time of expanding, they had become slaves to a nation called Egypt. They had become slaves. They were in captivity. But God knew and God remembered And so what did he do? He graciously, because of his great love, because of his desire to be in relationship with them, he rescued them out of Egypt. We all know this story. He he did miraculous things to rescue this nation. He parted the Red Sea and brought them safely through. And he did this to have a relationship with his people. And once he had rescued them, he gave them a law. And he gave them this law, not because he wanted them to be good enough for him, but because he wanted to protect them. He gave them a law to protect this relationship between him and them, because he knew humanity. He knew our weak hearts. He knew we would very quickly desire other things. And so he gave us the law to protect us, protect our relationship with him. And soon enough, God brought them into the promised land. He brought them into a place with food and drink and all that they needed. And yet something went wrong. Because despite, again, despite God's grace and love towards them, despite Him showing them exactly how He wanted them to live, Israel disobeyed. They forgot about God. They stopped valuing and pursuing their relationship with God and they turned to other things to try and satisfy their hearts again. They became self-centered. They became self-sufficient. They rejected God. And when Israel as a nation rejected God, their society, their nation began to crumble as they attempted to fill their hearts with things, with other things that could never satisfy them. And so their nation was just going in decline, further and further into decline as sin raged on. And things got so bad that they they ended up setting up kings for themselves, but these kings couldn't be what God could be to them. And then these kings became corrupt. They too disobeyed God. They too went away. Things got even worse, and, and Israel actually split into two separate nations, one called Israel, one called Judah. Both of them had kings, and both kings become corrupt. And as time went on, things only got worse. And this is where the prophets come in. The prophets were specially chosen by God. Why? Because you know, Israel wasn't like us today. They didn't have their own personal Bible app just to switch on and, and see what God says. They, they maybe had one text or a couple of texts that they would read as a community. But remember, they're in rebellion against God at this stage. They don't want to hear from God. And so they had no way of hearing from them. And so what God did throughout the Old Testament is he'd raise up prophets. And these prophets were equipped with with power. They often did miraculous things, but they were also mainly equipped 
with a message for Israel to call them back, to call them away from the things that they were pursuing and call them back into a relationship with God. And, and, and God actually often got these prophets to do really weird stuff. Like we, we read it and we go, this is, this is strange. But all of these things, the same purpose was there. The purpose was to call Israel back to himself because he still desired relationship with them, even if they didn't want it. And so this is where Hosea comes into things. Hosea is one of these prophets. He's been raised up during this time when Israel is in rebellion against God. They're pursuing other things. And God gives Hosea a message for them. A message to turn back. A message from a God who loves them and still desires to have that relationship. So we're going to read from Hosea chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen. I don't know if you can see it. Hosea chapter 1, and we'll read from chapter 2. Here's what it says. When the Lord spoke, first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord called his name, Not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay, so that might have sounded a little bit weird and and confusing to you initially. But basically what happens is God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And it sounds strange, and that is definitely not the application from today. Even if you think, even if you think God, God told you to do it, it's not the application. But he does this. Remember what I said before. He does this specifically because he wants to show Israel something. He wants to show Israel something about himself. He marries this lady called Gomer. Hosea obediently does this. And, and by all accounts, things seem to go well. They have three children. And we saw the names listed there. The first was Jezreel, which means the Lord will reap. The second is No Mercy, not a great name to have. And the third is Not My People. And again, the purpose is the same. Even through Hosea's children, he's trying to communicate a message to Israel that God's judgment is coming because they have rejected him. Because they have rejected him and they are walking in sin walking in in self-centeredness 
But you see, there's even a bigger picture going on here. Because if you remember what we explained before, by marrying a prostitute, God is trying to show Israel that this is what he did for them. When they were in slavery in Egypt, when they had no way of escape, when they were serving and worshipping other gods, he graciously saved them. He pulled them back. He brought them out in the same way that Hosea went to, to marry Gomer, to love her, perhaps when she was unlovable by other people, is God saying, this is what I did for you, Israel. Don't miss this. This is how I've treated you. But you would have saw, as we talked about, Israel in rebellion against God. They've gone away from him. So what do you think happens in this marriage between Hosea and Gomer? Well, let's look at chapter 3 and we'll see what takes place. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. So you can see here that, that in this marriage, everything seemed to be going well. But despite Hosea's love and kindness, this woman ran off. She rejected him and she'd walked in her former life as a prostitute. She'd slept with other men. She'd got herself back into the things that she'd been saved from. And as we said, be thinking of the imagery. The imagery here is to show Israel that just like Gomer had rejected Hosea, Israel had rejected God. They'd rejected God. They turned their backs on God. It was not Hosea's fault that Gomer had run off. And it was not God's fault that Israel had turned their backs on him. And yet, notice in this story that we just read that God tells Hosea to go and get her back. To love her again. Why? Look in verse 1. It says, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And so he's showing here that even though Israel is in this state of rebellion, of rejection, God still loves them. And Hosea needs to still love his wife. He needs to go get her back. This is, the, this is the intimate love of God. This is the desire of God to have a relationship with us, that he would love us even when we flat out say to him, I don't want you, I'm going this way. And that's what Hosea is showing to Israel. But there's a problem here. Because although God loves Israel, he cannot tolerate what they're doing. He cannot tolerate their sin and he must punish their sin. Because God is a holy God and he hates him. Because God is such a good and loving God, he necessarily must hate everything which is not good and not loving. And that's what sin is. Otherwise, he would not be good. He would not be loving. And so he hates what Israel is embracing. They're embracing a lifestyle that leads to death. 
And so there's a problem here. And after this chapter, after God's just graciously shown his love to Israel, that he's going to win them back, the next 11 chapters of this book is about God's judgment. About God's judgment coming upon Israel and calling them, turn away from your sin. The next 11 chapters are about God accusing them, saying, this is what you have done. Turn back. My judgment is coming. And yet, I think we often get the wrong idea about judgment at times. In Hosea, God's judgment is primarily about winning his people back. Listen to this verse from chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So even this judgment, God's heart for them was that they would turn back to him. But beside that, Israel was still walking in sin. They were still walking in rejection. And so God had to judge them. And so what we're going to do for the rest of our time today is we're going to summarize these last 11 chapters and we're going to look at and, and unpack the three major things, the three major, major reasons that God's judgment was coming against Israel. There's three things that they had done and each one led to the other. And as we do that, we're going to have the opportunity to honestly ask ourselves whether we too are walking in some of the things that Israel are walking in. And so I want to challenge you to take an honest look at your own relationship with God as we go through this list. So, three things. The first one, number one, they had replaced true intimacy with God and knowledge of God for habitual practices that had no substance and no life-changing value. I'll read that again. They had replaced true intimacy with God and knowledge of God for habitual practices that had no substance and no life-changing value. Let's explain what this means. We'll look at a few verses just to, to highlight this. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So he's accusing them here. There is no love but more than that, there's no knowledge of him. There's no knowledge of what God is like. Chapter 8, verse 2. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. So, so here's this picture of Israel crying out to God, God, we know who you are. And yet, by their actions... They're showing that they actually don't know him so well. They make kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Even though they said they knew God, there was no heart behind their actions. There was no heart behind their actions. Chapter 10 4, they utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. Again, this picture of Israel saying a lot of things, making a lot of promises to God, saying that they know him, but these empty words. They have no substance. And I saved the best one for last. This verse has stuck with me all week. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. 
Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. Listen to this. They return, but not upward. They return, but not upward. What a verse. And the idea is that it, with this is that Israel are kind of coming back to God in a sense, but they're not really. All they're doing is they're coming back and, and doing the religious stuff that they're supposed to do. They're doing the traditions. They're, they're following some of the stuff God said, but they're not doing it with any heart. They are not returning to the intimate and transforming relationship that God requires. Instead, they're neglecting this and their walk with God has become a series of habits that they can do and they get on with living the way they want. So this is how Israel had failed, the first point. And the question becomes for us, is what, what about our relationship with God? How would you describe your relationship with God? Is your relationship with God one of intimacy and love? Hosea talks about this relationship that's like a husband to a wife, like a father to children. Is your relationship with God one that of closeness or is it one of distance? Because you see, God desires his people, as we said earlier, God desires his people to have a relationship with him where we would get our joys, our hopes, our, our, our purpose in life, our fulfillment all from that relationship with him. And so the question is, is that our relationship with God? Because I think it's really easy as Christians to live a life that becomes like Israel. It's so easy to forget that what God is really all about is relationship. It's so easy to make our, our, our whole Christian life to be about just doing things. Like we read our Bibles, we, we pray, we come to this church service, we, we do other Christian stuff, but why do we do any of those things? We do those things in order to grow our intimacy and love with God. And if we do those things apart from that, they have no substance and no meaning. It's so easy to walk in these things. We drift towards complacency. We drift towards a shallow relationship with God. Like, like some questions maybe to help you get an idea. Like what's, what's God teaching you lately? What's God been teaching you? How's God been bringing you joy lately? What are you learning about him in the last month or so? How is he meeting you in the tough stuff of life? God desires your heart. Is that how you would describe your relationship with him? Like, let me give you an illustration. I've been married for nine months now, so pretty much an expert on marriage. I'm going to be running a seminar shortly for it. But I haven't... No, just kidding, I know nothing. But, but one thing I do know is that if I start going through the motions in my marriage, things go pretty badly. Like, you know, I'm doing the things that I should be doing. I'm helping out around the house. I'm, I'm you know, doing, do, doing all the stuff you do in marriage that is helpful. See, I literally don't know anything. Um, but let's say, let's say I'm, I'm doing those things, but... If I'm not pursuing Signa, things are going wrong. Like if I'm not 
talking to her intentionally, trying to get to her heart to see how she's going in life. If I'm not spending time with her, quality time with her, if I'm just doing all the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, I can be married still, but I can be enjoying none of the closeness, none of the intimacy that marriage really brings. And it's the same in our relationship with God. If we start thinking that our relationship with God is primarily a relationship where we tick reading the Bible off, tick praying today, tick doing those things, then our relationship with God is not going to be what it should be. Our relationship with God needs to be a relationship where going after His heart, going after what He wants, trying to learn more about Him. That's our desire. Is that your relationship with God? Is that what your relationship looks like? And so this is what Israel was being judged for. They put aside God and they'd replaced him for mere religious practices. And so number two flows directly out of this. Because they'd stopped receiving their joy, their hope, their happiness, their purpose in life from God, they needed to get it elsewhere. They needed to go to something else because we all need something to get that from. And so number two, they were running to other things as their God. They were running to other things as their God. Because this relationship had been neglected, they began to to run to, to things to fulfill their hearts. Listen to these verses. Chapter 13, 2 to 3. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. Chapter 8, 4. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And I could go on and on with verses here. It's all about this. They basically start to pursue things to satisfy their own hearts because they did not know God deeply. They did not know what he desired for them. And so they were attempting to fulfill it. Now, in Israel's time, they they were building, literally building things out of gold and silver and and worshipping these things and thinking that these things had control of their lives and getting their hope from these things, their purpose from these things. But for us, what does that look like? Because I'm assuming that no one in this room during the week built a gold calf to worship. Just a guess. But what about for us? And I think the question is, what, what are the things that we run to that perhaps give us more purpose, more excitement, more joy than our relationship with God? And we need to be careful with this because I think we can jump to the the obviously bad things in our minds, but the most dangerous things to our Christian walks are the things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves. Like perhaps for you it's sport. Perhaps for you a lot of your week is concerned with sport, playing sport, training sport, watching sport. Maybe that's something that excites your heart. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But the question becomes, is sport more exciting to you than your relationship with God? Does your week, a good week or a bad week, depend on whether your sporting teams have done well, whether you've trained well, whether you're doing well? Does that excite you more than your relationship with God? Perhaps it's not sport. Perhaps it's, looking around, I know some of you probably aren't as sporty. Um, But perhaps perhaps it's entertainment. Our culture loves entertainment. We love to watch TV shows. We love to play video games. We love to watch movies. Is it entertainment for you? Like, like quite honestly, sometimes I get 
a little bit more excited for getting home and watching a TV show than sometimes that I feel about my relation with God. That's not good. That's a, that's a big warning sign to me to say, stop, something's wrong. You need to turn away from that. Has your life become, has the life of, of social media or playing video games or watching things become better than your relationship with God? These are the things you really want to talk about with your friends. You don't want to talk about how God's growing you, how God's changing your heart. These things should be indicators for us to show us that there's a problem. There's a problem, we need to do something about it. Because slowly but surely, those things are taking the place of, the, of God in our hearts. Perhaps it's not that, perhaps it's relationships. Perhaps your goal in life, whether you're married or not, is that relationship. Or perhaps it is to get a relationship. Perhaps you feel that if you don't have a relationship with someone, that you don't really have true fulfillment, true joy, true hope. Or maybe if you're married here, perhaps your spouse has become your purpose and your hope and your joy more than God. But we need to be so careful of this. We need to be so careful of this because, like, to be honest, if I went into my relationship with Signa putting her up as my God, things would be heading for disaster. Because, look, I love Signa, but she would make a terrible God. She would make a terrible, terrible God. Because she can't fulfill my innermost hopes, my innermost desires, my innermost purpose in life. And it's unfair for me to put that weight upon her. You want to know why there's so many divorces in the world? Because people set their partners up as their gods and they say, you need to fulfill me. You need to complete me. You need to make me happy. You need to be the one who keeps me satisfied. And when that happens, all that that's going to lead to is anger, frustration, fights, because they're not meeting their expectations. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's people-pleasing. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's money. I don't know. I think you're able to tell in your own hearts what you may be running to above God. But this is not how we were made to live. These things can never satisfy our hearts. And we know that because we get over things so quickly. We always need something new. We get tired of one relationship, we need a new relationship. We get tired of this video game, we need a new video game. We need something more every time because it gets old because these things are never designed to satisfy our hearts. Only God was designed to give us true purpose, true happiness, true hope. And only when we have our relationship with God right in that way will we be able to have those things. And so this is what happened to Israel. They'd, they'd lost their intimacy with God and therefore they were running to other things to try and satisfy themselves. Is this like us? And finally, the last one, which again flows on from these two. Because they lost their intimacy, because they were running to other things, they believed that they were their own providers and that they could control their lives apart from God. Chapter 12, verse 8 says, Ephraim has said, which is Israel, has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. 
chapter 2, verse 8. And she, that's Israel, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished her, lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So they had lost sight. They'd gone down this track, and in the end they thought that everything that they were doing was by their own pursuits. They thought that they were the ones who got to decide where they went and what they did. Their relationship had been completely pushed to the side. You know, who determines our lives? Who determines what we do? Who determines what's good for us and what's the right direction for us? Is it God or is it ourselves? And don't miss this because I think often when we start neglecting our relationship with God, when we start running to other things to satisfy us, we become really easy to fool about what God wants. Like we become really easy to fool and we start thinking silly things like God's primarily concerned with making me happy. He's primarily concerned with making me feel good rather than a transforming life that is pleasing to Him. And so this sums up God's accusation against Israel. You've neglected your relationship with me. You've run to other things. And now you believe that you're actually God and that you rule your life and you decide what to do. Is this us? And so this is what God was judging Israel for. But you know, the sad reality of this story You know, I'd love to say that Israel repented of their sins and they turned to the Lord, but they didn't. They chose not to listen to God. They chose to live a wasted life, a life pursuing things that could never satisfy. So shortly after this book was written, uh, Israel were judged. They were taken captive by another nation. They were exiled from the land. God's judgment had come. But if you remember what we said before, that this was not God's desire. In fact, one of the unique things about Hosea, what I've loved, is it gives us this snapshot of God's heart. Listen to this verse from chapter 11. I think it's God talking, and you can kind of see the agony almost in God's heart. Listen to this, chapter 11, 8 to 9. How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Can you, can you see this tension? God's heart is for his people to turn. He doesn't want to judge them, but he will because he must because he's against sin. He's against them walking in opposition to him. So there's this tension in the book of Isaiah between God's love and God's judgment. So you might think to yourself, wait a minute. If God ended up judging his people, how does Hosea's relationship where he wins back his wife reflect what's happened with Israel. Because God said, go love her again, and he did. And and for all we know, they spent the rest of their marriage together. But Israel doesn't repent. They don't turn back. God doesn't win them back. And so how does this work? But, and you know, if you look at this book as a whole, there's even more places where God alludes to this time when he will do something. Listen to chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. It says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So God is saying he will win his people back. 
but he didn't hear. You see, Hosea once again reveals to us this problem between God's love and God's judgment. His fierce love for humanity and yet their sin that could not be tolerated, he must punish it. Judgment and love, this was the issue. And what this ultimately leads to is something beautiful that I think we can easily look over. You know, so great was God's love for us. His constant rejection of his people all throughout history, constantly turning away, constantly pushing away, even though he gave them life and breath. Because of his great love and desire to walk in true intimacy with his people, he did something about it. He solved this problem between love and judgment, and he did it in an unexpected way. Out of his great love for us, God comes in the flesh. Jesus comes. And he lives a perfect life, the only perfect life ever lived. And what happens? Just for one more time, his people reject him. Humanity rejects him. And God himself is beaten and hung on a cross. Why? Because he takes upon himself our rejection. He takes upon himself all the rejection that humanity has given him, and he dies for it. He takes the punishment of our sins. He pays the penalty so that whoever believes in him may be able to have their rejection, their sins completely forgiven so that this judgment and love problem wasn't there anymore. You see, at the cross we see this beautiful picture where judgment and love, they meet together. They meet together in Jesus hanging on a cross and in God's such great desire for his people to come to him that he would spare his own life. So don't miss this. Don't miss this great love of God which calls to his people, come back to me. And so we went through those things earlier where we too may be walking in them. Don't fear because of those things. Come back. Come back to this message that God desires a relationship with you, a deeper relationship with you. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've just been neglecting that relationship. Come back to the cross. Come back to the place where your judgment was taken. But take your relationship seriously because that's what he's after. And so just to finish with here, I want to close with some practical things for us to consider as we go about our week. And they're going to work against what we spoke about earlier. Number one, we need to cultivate a greater intimacy with God. And don't misunderstand me. When you believe in Jesus, when you truly believe in Him, you're as close to God as you ever can be. Because you get Jesus' righteousness and He takes your punishment. You're as close to Him as you can be, but that doesn't mean that you're walking in intimacy and love and receiving all that you can from that relationship. Just like I can be married to my wife and not be enjoying any of the benefits of marriage, you can be walking in a relationship with God and enjoying nothing of it and living a wasted life running after other things. And so we need to cultivate our relationship with God. 
And I think we do this uh, in a number of different ways. For me, what I need to do is to get myself around things that, 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 that fill me with a desire for God. For me, that means going for walks and praying in nature. Sounds lame, I know, but that's what I do. I go for walks, I pray, I get, I get close to God because that, that works for me. I don't know what it is for you. For my wife, it's listening to music, the same Christian songs over and over again until I want to leave the house. <coughs> but that's for her. What is it for you? It might be something different. What causes you to, to stir your affections for who God is, to stir your affections for Jesus? I don't know. You only know what that is. Number two, get yourself around people who draw you to God. We all know those people around us who, when we're with them, they make us want to be more serious about our relationship with God. Hang out with those people. Spend time with those people. It's been one of the greatest joys of my life is having mentors who are just on fire for God. And every time I meet with them, I walk away going, man, I need to do more. I need to do more. Spend time with those people. Read God's Word. Number three, read God's Word intentionally, looking for God's heart. Don't read God's Word looking simply for the things that you need to do to keep Him happy for the week. Read God's Word intentionally, looking for God's heart behind it and growing that relationship with Him. And the last one, I could go on, but last one, get your eyes on the Gospel. Get your eyes onto this truth that God died for you. Like meditate on what that actually means. Does your life reflect a life that you're living for someone who died for you? Constantly get your eyes on that. Constantly get your eyes on the fact that he died, he rose again, and he's given you a mission in this life, a purpose in this life that is far greater than anything else. Get your eyes on the gospel. So that were the first ones, to, to cultivate our intimacy with God. Number two, We honestly need to identify the things in our life that are robbing us of our relationship with God. That are robbing you of the affections for God. Like, like in all honesty, again, if we can be honest with ourselves, maybe you need to stop playing video games for a month. Maybe you need to ban yourself from internet for a month. And if that sounds super shocking to some of you, then maybe that reveals a little bit of a problem. Because those things become our gods. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. You know the things that can be easily taking the joy in your life. And don't hear me wrong again. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't get joy from doing other things. But I'm saying if those are the things that excite you more than your relationship with God, something's wrong and you need to change. You need to change that. Alarm bells are going off. God's not exciting you anymore. Do something about that. Be dramatic about that. Change things in an extreme way. That's not legalism. That's taking your relationship with God seriously. I don't know what it is for you. Last one. Number three. Develop habits in your life where you're honestly asking yourself the question, am I following God's lead or my lead? Am I believing in a God who ultimately wants to make me happy and me feel good? Or am am I believing in a God who wants to grow us and change us and transform us to live a life for His glory? Even if that takes us into uncomfortable places. Develop habits and routines where we can get our eyes onto God. Are we following Him? Are we looking to Him 
Or are we just kind of plowing ahead and doing what makes us feel good? And so, so these are some of the things I think we can do, be doing. And I don't know what's come up for you tonight, but I just want to challenge you not to miss this opportunity. Like, let's not be like Israel. Let's not miss this chance to do something about it. Let's not be in the same place next time we come here next month. And so if you've been convicted tonight, then look to Jesus. Know that that judgment has been poured out upon him. And then do something. Make some changes. Pray to God. Ask him to help you to make those changes. Talk to people about those changes. We have to take these opportunities. Let's not be like Israel and live a wasted life pursuing things that can never transform. Let's pursue an intimate and relational God whose desire and heart is to give us a life of true fulfillment and true purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have revealed things to us in our hearts. Thank you that you have revealed things to my heart this week. Pray, Lord, that we won't miss this chance, that we won't pass it off as something that's not that important or justify ourselves by some way or another. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to make those changes. Help us to look to your cross and not to feel fear or judgment, but to know that we are loved and we can make those changes because we know you will provide for us. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to do that and keep our eyes on you. Grow us into a community here who walk deeply with you who live lives that reflect what you do for us, that you love those who were rejected. You love us who rejected you. Help us to do the same thing to those around us. Lord, we need you. We can't do this ourselves. Help us to be dependent upon your spirit. Transform us, grow us, and use us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.